Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Acts in chapter number 20, continuing in our series, verse by verse, through the book of Acts. How many of you, during the, uh, the shutdown, during uh, last year, especially for us, it was right when we were all stuck at home for two or three months, not very many stores were open, restaurants weren't open, and it's hard to believe that seems in some ways like it was so long ago, but that time when really nothing was open, and I don't know if you were like our family, we started kind of trying to find like a show we could watch together or some things we could do at home. We weren't stuck glued to the TV, but we definitely had more time at home. There was no school, there was no sports, and I don't know why, but came across this one on Netflix uh, entitled Marie Kondo. I don't remember what the title was, but she was the, the host. Something about tidying your house up with Marie Kondo. Did anybody else ever watch one of those episodes? Marie Kondo. And there was this, this lady on TV telling you to get rid of everything in your house, to clean everything up. And, uh, and, 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 and even today, I actually saw in my daughter's room, her shirts were folded in a way that Marie Kondo taught us during the, uh, the ways to make more space and, and get rid of your books and get rid of basically like keep only, if I remember, it's been a year. Uh, you, you should, I don't remember what the number was. I want to say like you have a whole library. Find the five books that spark joy. That was her little phrase. Does this spark joy in your life? And I'm like, everything in my closet sparks joy. That's why I kept it. I don't want to clean my closet out. But we were doing stuff, cleaning around the house and organizing the garage and doing all these things. And, and really kind of what was, and, and that's appealing in a lot of ways. Why? To, to get kind of to, to the things that you need. Just to, to, to um, minimize your, your life, the minimalist movement. To minimize your life to just the things that matter to clean out the unnecessary things, the things that are just cluttering up your life, maybe cluttering up your mind, cluttering up your schedule, and to really get down to what matters, the simple over the complex. I think all of us, by nature, we prefer things being simplified, the simple over the complex. And the nature of, of our society, because of the nature of our society and the complexities in modern society, there are, you can go on Amazon, you can go to a bookstore, you can and find a wave of books and television shows and other things that will try to show you how to simplify your life. The benefits of being a minimalist rather than extravagance and excess. Uh, these explain the blessings of learning that less is more in our lives. In the Christian life, it's often true that less is more. The Bible is chocked full of information and instruction, but the Bible often boils things down to their essence. We think of maybe the Old Testament as having just all of these rules, and you read it, and, and, and the Old Testament has all these rules. There are hundreds, over 600 uh, laws in the Old Testament law. And then you go, and you, as you study the Pharisees and those that would try to keep the law, they would take those 600 laws and they would extrapolate them into thousands of guidelines that you had to try to follow if you wanted to be a pleasing follower of God, if you wanted to be somebody that was living in accordance with God's word. And what did they do? They were trying to trick Jesus because there were more than 600 laws. In trying to trick Jesus, uh, they asked him, they said, what, Master, what is the greatest commandment? 
And they, they, they said this, as you study it, it says in the Bible, they said this to trick him, basically. What's the most important of those 600, and what did Jesus do? He boiled this complex, uh, and I apologize, my mic is, well, use the handheld, we're, we, we got a new headset mic, we're working all of our screens, our sound system, and I couldn't tell if I was the only one hearing that, but I guess it's out there. I'll go to the handheld, and we'll try to figure that out for tonight. Test one, two. All right, here I am. And uh, what did they say with with, uh, with, with Jesus, they came to him and, tried to, and they were saying to try to trick him. And what did Jesus say? He said, the, the first commandment is this, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind. And then he said this, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then what did he say? On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. You know what he said? If you just focus on those two things, you're going to fulfill everything that I said in the Old Testament. You can hang all the law, that's, that's Moses, the five books, and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all, all of those, the, 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 the teachings of the prophets, everything that the, the, the Old Testament uh, Israelites, all the laws that were given to them, and all of the things the prophets said, if you'll just do those two things. Now, by the way, those two things are not the easiest things in the world to do. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. But he said, you don't need to worry about keeping 600 laws. You need to focus on your relationship with me and your relationship with others. And if you get this relationship right, it will impact this, these relationships. And it's amazing how we will, a few years ago, our church theme was simplify. In the Christian life, we, com we, we, we make things so difficult and so complex, and all the rules I've got to follow, all these things I've got to do, and Jesus boiled it down to those two things. We overcomplicate things. We overcomplicate our lives, our families, our Christianity, our schedules, our budgets, but the Bible says there is simplicity in Christ. This morning, as we continue to walk through the book of Acts, I want to bring you a message this morning entitled, The Heart of Christianity. I want to, I think in Paul's life, we're going to see really the secret, if you will, the secret sauce, the secret to Paul's success, why God used him so mightily. We're going to see it boiled down, his entire, the, the, the power behind his life and ministry. What was it that allowed God to use him in such great ways? I think in just about four or five verses this morning, we're going to see three things that I believe make up the heart of Christianity. Now, I believe we ought to study the Bible and learn, and we can constantly be growing, but don't overcomplicate it. We're going to see three thoughts today from the life of Paul from the heart of Christianity. In Acts in chapter number 20, for a, as a reminder, I see several folks that are here as first-time guests, and we welcome you if you've not been with us in this series. Just as a reminder where we're at in Acts 20, we are traveling with Paul uh, along uh, back toward Jerusalem as he con concludes his third missionary journey. He's gone out three different times, gone out preaching the gospel to the known world, planting, especially the Gentiles, planting churches and, and, and reaching multitudes of converts. And that's where, and now he's finished his third journey and he's on the, the boat ride home. And we looked at this map. That map's a little brighter this week than it was last week, isn't it? And our new screen, and this, this one should be up this week. And, and, uh, and it doesn't have the shadow of the light in there. Praise the Lord. We can see the dots at the top. And, uh, and so we saw last week, we were in Ephesus there, and he went all the way over into Greece where Corinth is, and then he came all the way back, that purple dotted line. And where we're going to pick it up, we're going to pick it up, Paul is in, in Acts in chapter number 20, 
We're going to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I said 20, and it, it, it is 20. Yes, that is where we are. We're going to pick it up, and Paul is, is at uh, Troas, and then he's gone from Miletus. So that little, from Troas, the purple line up there, down near Ephesus. Miletus, that's the dot we're going to find. Now, let's pick it up, Acts in chapter number 20, and let's look at verse number 17. Acts 20, verse number 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. We can throw that map back up there, if you will, please. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. So again, get the picture. Ephesus is the place where Paul had spent more time in his missionary journeys. He had been there several years than any other place. Last week we saw that he sailed by there because he said, if I stop there, I'm going to get too busy. I'm not going to make it back in time to Jerusalem to bring the offering. So he sailed by there. But while he's in Miletus, he sends somebody and says, go get the pastors. Go get the leaders uh, from the church there at Ephesus and bring them, the spiritual leaders. I can't spend time with the whole church, but go bring them with me. And now this is Paul in Miletus talking to the spiritual leaders from Ephesus. He says there in 18, we read it, verse number 19. He said, you know how, how when I came to you, what I did, verse 19. Would you read it, verse 19 to 21 aloud with me? Ready, begin. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So here is Paul in Miletus speaking to the Ephesian elders and in these few verses, as he's getting ready, he's going to share some more things that we're going to study in a little more depth on July 18th. Next week is our church's 45th anniversary, and so we have some very special uh, pre uh, preachers that will be with us and guests that will be with us next Sunday. But the following Sunday, we'll study the rest of what Paul tells the Ephesian elders, some amazing wisdom in Scripture. But this is just his introduction to these Ephesian elders, and I think in his introduction, we see the heart of Christianity boiled down to its essence. It shows us what does it really mean to be a servant of Jesus Christ, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If we boil Paul's whole life and ministry down, what were the keys? What was the heart of Christianity for Paul and for us as well? I want you to see three factors and we'll be done this morning. Number one, I see here in Paul's words to the Ephesian elders, the first key or to the heart of Christianity, number one is our motive for Christian living. Our motive for Christian living. Why do we do what we do as Christians? I've heard in years past, it's been a long time since I've heard this, but I've heard in years past some uh, pastors and preachers say things like, your motives don't matter. It only matters that you do what's right. Motives don't matter. It doesn't matter why you do what you do, just that you do it, that you do the right thing. Now, I do think it matters what we do. If I say my motives are right, and James said, show me your faith by your works, that there's an internal part of the Christian life and an external part of the Christian life. By the way, don't get it backwards. The Pharisees got it backwards. They thought that their faith flowed from the outside in, and, and, and Christianity should flow from the inside out. But our motives do matter. Motives are critical. Why do you do what you do? 
Why do you serve the Lord? Why do you go to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you abstain from doing some things and do these other things? And why do you, why in some ways is your life countercultural and it goes against what popular society says we should do? Why do we do those things? It's not just enough that we're doing the right things. I believe you see it all through scripture. Again, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all through scripture. Not only should we do the right things, but we should do them for the right reasons. And our Christianity, we must get a hold of this. Why do we do what we do? And do you see Paul's uh, first three words of verse number 19 there? Would you read those first three words of verse 19 aloud? Ready, begin serving the, serving the who? Serving the Lord. And you can, and we'll, we'll, we'll pull out a few other verses from Paul's writings. But all through Paul, you see why he did what he did. It was not for himself, for his own gain or glory. It was not for his promotion. It was not to impress other people. It wasn't for the recognition of fellow believers. It wasn't for the approval of the cities that he went in. It wasn't to, to get, to get uh, powerful relationships with, with government officials in the places he went. Why he did what he did, it was all for the Lord. His motive was Jesus Christ. He said there in verse 18, from the first day that I came to Asia, after what manner I've been with you at all seasons, what was I doing? Serving the Lord with all humility of mind. Our motive for Christian living, motives are critical. Motives matter. Why we do what we do matters. It reminds me of the story of the elderly man. He found a magic lamp on the beach, and you maybe have heard stories like this. He picked up the lamp and rubbed it, and what popped out of the lamp? Church, a Genie, you've been reading your Bible. A genie popped out. That's not in the Bible. A genie popped out of the magic lamp. And, and, and he said to him, he said, all right, because you freed me, I'll give you one wish. It's kind of a stingy genie. He didn't give the three wishes that some of the other genies give. I'll give you one wish. And the man said, he said, I've got one wish. There's only one wish I have, genie, and that wish, he said, is that my, my brother and I, he would finally forgive me. My brother and I had a fight 30 years ago. He hasn't spoken to me since. My wish is that he'll finally forgive, forgive me. There was a sudden thunderclap, and the genie said, your wish has been granted. And then after a brief moment, the genie said, most men would have asked for wealth or for fame, but you only wanted your brother's forgiveness. Is this because you're old and dying? No, the man cried, but my brother is, and he's worth about 60 million. His motives weren't quite what they seemed. Now, it sound, what he did sounds like a good thing to do, but his motive was selfish. His motive was self-serving. Why he did what he did. Church family, on this uh, Independence Day, July 4th, Sunday morning, may I remind each one of us, our motive should be him. We don't live this Christian life for the approval of anyone else. We don't do it because we have to. Uh, the Christian life is supposed to be a get-to life, not a have-to life. I get to serve him because he willingly laid down his life for me. Like Paul told the Romans, the Christians in Rome, it is my reason reasonable service that I can present my body, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto him. Why? Because of what he's done for me. I want to live for him, not I have to live for him. I'm not living for him uh, because I'm scared of him. I'm not living for him because I've been guilted into it. I'm not living for him because I've been manipulated. I'm not living for him because my parents said I have to. And because this person, no, that, those are all, all short-lived and wrong motives that will, that will not last, stand the test of time. The motive should be we're living for him because of our love for him. 
What did Paul say to the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15? For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and he that died for all, that they which live, look at this, should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. What did he say? The love of Christ constraineth us. Not my parents' rules, not the Christian school, not, not the college I go to, not the church I go to. Well, they said if I want to serve in that way, I've got to do this, and I've got to live that way. And No, the love of Christ constraineth us. Why do we do what we do? Because of the way that he's loved us, the life that he's laid down for us. The only sustainable motive for a lifetime of joyful Christian living is the love of Christ. If we serve primarily out of duty as our primary motive, we will grow weary in a joyless Christianity. If we serve mainly out of fear, we'll become miserable from constantly wondering if we have done enough to appease an angry God. If we serve to gain the approval of man, we will grow disillusioned when man doesn't give us the approval we are seeking or when the one that did give us approval lets us down. We'll grow disillusioned. If we serve for recognition, we'll become discouraged when our labor is not adequately appreciated. But the only sustainable motive for a lifetime of joyful Christian living is the love of Christ. What did Paul say? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of suffering, being made conformable into his death. This one thing, Paul said, this one thing I do, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The one thing I'm doing is seeking to please him. Christ is my motive. My motive is not your approval. Now, sometimes it is, because like you, I, I get mixed up. My motive is not to impress my, my wife or my children or my, my, my extended family, but sometimes it is. Sometimes I do what I'm supposed to do because I, I don't want my wife to think ill of me. I don't want my kids. But that is not the right motive, nor is it a good lasting motive. Hey, teenagers, the motive of why you should live for God is not because you'll get in trouble if you don't. The motive is that if he died for me, then shouldn't I live for him? If he loved me, shouldn't I love him? We love him because he first loved us. The love of Christ constraineth me. It's not why do my parents have all these rules. It's, God, what can I do to please you? What can I do to fall in love with you? The boiling Christianity down to the heart of it, we have to get our motive right. Paul's motive for his Christianity was Christ. When co-laborers deserted him, Christ was enough. When converts mistreated him, Christ was enough. When other Christians lied about him, Christ was enough. When enemies tried to sabotage his life's work, Christ was enough. He didn't seek revenge. When recognition and blessings came, Christ was enough. I've learned how to, how to abound. And when suffering in times of poverty came, Christ was enough. I've learned how to be abased, he said. I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Christ is enough. Paul said it this way, Christ, who is our life. He's everything. He's why I do what I do. He is my motive. You know, when I came to you at all seasons, my heart was serving the Lord. The heart of the Christian life is, is that we must settle in our hearts the why and the who of our Christianity. You must settle in your life the why and the who of your Christianity. Why are you living for Christ? And really, who are you living for? The prosperity gospel says, live for God so it can make your life better. 
What's the who of that Christianity if that's Christianity? What's the who of that faith? It's me. Much of modern uh, American and Western Christianity and really around the world in some places, the who is me. How can I make my life better? How can I have my best life now? How can I find God's favor on my life? The who is me, it's not him. That Not that in all things he might have the preeminence, but in all things I might have the pleasure and I might have the glory and I might have the gain and I might have the prosperity. Oh no, we must settle the why and the who of our faith if we're going to live a lifetime for Christ as Paul did. He says, you know I was with you serving the Lord. The why is to please Christ. The who isn't a fellow believer. It isn't approval from another church. It's Christ. Why are you running your race for Christ? The story is told of a 1957 football game between Texas A&M, which was coached by the legendary Bear Bryant at the time. Texas A&M and Arkansas at Fayetteville were playing in 1957. Texas A&M was undefeated at the time. It was the end of the fourth quarter, and the score was Texas A&M 7, Arkansas 6. Texas A&M had the ball at midfield with about a minute left, maybe a couple minutes left in the game, when Charlie Milstead got injured and had to leave the game. He was the quarterback. When, with less than a minute left in the game, Bear Bryant grabbed his backup quarterback, Roddy Osborne, He grabbed him by the shoulder pads and he said this, under no circumstances, are you listening to me, Roddy? Under no circumstances are you to throw the ball. Number one, you're the backup QB. Number two, we've only got a couple minutes left. We just gotta kill the clock, get a couple first downs, and we win. He said, you get the ball, you run out of the pocket, don't go out of bounds, you slide down however far you get before you're about to get tackled, slide down so you don't fumble it. That's what you're to do. And it worked. They were about midfield. Roddy Osborne ran one all the way down to the 20, slid down, clock keeps ticking, clock keeps running. He did what he was supposed to do on the next play. Time was close to running out. Roddy Osborne sprinted out of the pocket and saw his receiver waving at him wide open in the end zone. And at the time... He looked wide open, receiver, touchdown. We score this, it's all over. He did what his coach told him not to do. He threw the ball. Out of nowhere, true story, an Arkansas back came, intercepted it, one of the fastest players on the Arkansas team, intercepted it in the end zone and began to streak down the sideline running as fast as he could. And Roddy Osborne was the only hope and Roddy Osborne was one of the slower players on the field. He began to run after him. This, this, this defensive back is running down the sideline about to make Texas A&M lose their undefeated record. He's running down. And to everyone's surprise, Roddy Osborne began to gain on this defensive back around the five-yard line. Roddy Osborne tackled him right there, right before he scored, saving the game for Texas A&M. They re- remained undefeated. After the game, the reporters came and they asked Bear Bryant, they said, how is it? How is it that Roddy Osborne, one of the slowest players on the field, was able to catch that that, uh, Arkansas back, one of the fastest players on the field? And Bear Bryant said it this way. He said, gentlemen, it's all about motivation. The young man for Arkansas was running for his team, for his school, and to win the game. But Roddy Osborne was running for his life. Why we run changes how we run. Why we run, what our motive is, what our motivation, who we're doing it for, changes the way that we do it. We must, we must, we must learn the right motive. Secondly, not only do motives matter, 
But secondly, we see with Paul in verses 18 through 20, our manner of Christian living. Our manner of Christian living. What does he say here? You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. What is Paul saying to them? He's saying to those Ephesian elders, and he says it later. We're going to see it in two weeks. He said, this is the last time we're going to talk. This is the last time I'm going to see you face to face. Paul knew I'm not passing back through this way. And what did Paul say? He said, I want you to, to live the message I preach, but not just because I preached it, because you saw me live it. You know my manner of Christian living. What did Paul say? My life matched my message. You saw it. I lived with you at all seasons, day in, day out, morning, noon, and night for years. And you saw my Christianity was an authentic Christianity. I, I was not a perfect man. Paul makes that clear in his writings. He struggled with the sin nature. He struggled with his own flesh. He struggled with doing the wrong things. But he said, he said, you saw that what I preached is what I lived. And may I say this, as we look at the heart of Christianity, we must get our motives right. And then, Christian believer, we must take a look at our manner of life. Does our life, do our actions, do our words, does our lifestyle match what we say we believe? The Christian life is, is not meant, we're not supposed to be one thing on Sunday morning at church and another thing the other 166 hours of the week. No, Christ who is our life, his life matched his message I was with you for years, and you saw me live an authentic, passionate, consecrated Christianity before you at all seasons. What is the heart of Christianity? Authentic, consistent Christian living. Not perfect, but in line with the teaching of God's word. A small child was sitting in church, and he looked up at his dad, and he said, Dad, what's a Christian? The father replied, well, son, a, a Christian is a person who loves and obeys God. He loves his friends and his neighbors and son, even his enemies. He prays often. He's kind. He's gentle. He's holy. He's more interested in going to heaven than in all earthly riches. That son is a Christian. The boy looked puzzled and thought for a minute. And then he asked his dad from his church pew, have I ever seen one? Convicting thought. Those that work with you and with me, do they see an authentic Christian on a daily basis? Oh, I didn't say, do they know you go to church? I didn't say, do they know that you say you believe in God? Do they see, Paul said, I was with you and you saw the way I live, my manner of living at all seasons. Do they see, your neighbors that live next to you, do they see anything different about your family? The way you treat one another, the way you love one another, the way you interact with one another? Those at work, do they see any difference in your ethics, your morals, your honesty, your integrity? Those at home, do they see anything different? Those that are closest to us? Convicting question, Dad, have I ever seen one of those? Christian, our manner of living must match our message. We do great harm to the name of Christ when we claim the name of Christ, but then we live in direct opposition to the teachings of Christ. We mistreat our children. Our social media accounts are filled with carnality, with criticism, with content unbecoming of a follower of God. We steal and lie and cheat at work to get ahead. 
Our homes are defined by conflict and unkindness. We're known far more for our anger, our greed, our selfishness, our bitterness than we are for the love of Christ that we say we have experienced. Christian, if our lives have not been transformed by Christ, why would anyone who doesn't know know him want what we say we have? The heart of Christianity is not just going to church an hour a week. It's living what we say we believe. And by the way, being authentic. Authentic doesn't mean perfect. Authentic means when you mess up, and you will. What did Paul say? Oh, wretched man that I am. The stuff I don't want to do, I do. The stuff I don't want to do, the stuff I want to do, I never do. Who shall deliver me? I'm always messing up. Authentic Christianity does not mean perfect Christianity. It means just that, authentic, real. You know what? Yes, I believe that, and yes, I messed up. Come to the boss. You know what? I, I, I lied about that, and I, I did wrong there. Come to the spouse, the, the ch- children. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have responded in anger and in bitterness. Authentic Christianity doesn't mean you're a perfect parent. It means, and I've heard this before, said before, children don't need perfect parents. They need real parents. None of us are perfect Christians. All of us can be authentic Christians. Was Paul a perfect Christian church? Yes or no? Would you say Paul was an authentic Christian? He really lived what he believed? Sure. The heart of Christianity is that our, 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 our lives must match our message. What did Jesus say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I hate everybody that, that, that disagrees with me on this issue. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, but I, I hate every church that doesn't exactly agree with me. on. And I'm not talking about foundational doctrinal things. I'm talking about churches that, that might choose to sing a song we don't sing, or maybe they, they have a choir, and we, we're going to have a choir. We don't have one right now, or they don't have stupid stuff. And we say that we are disciples of Christ. Oh, and Jesus said, here's how they're going to know the love you're going to have one toward another. And we have animosity toward our neighbors and bitterness toward those that voted differently than us and vitriol toward those at work that got the promotion we didn't have and, and unkindness to our spouse and a harshness to our children. And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And we say, oh, the love of Christ has changed me. And people look and say, well, if that's how it changed you, I don't know that I want my life changed that way. I know Christ's love, but then I don't show it to anyone else. Look at how Paul described his manner of living in this passage. What did he say in verse 18? I have been with you at all seasons. What kind of a Christian was he? I would suggest we see there he was a faithful Christian. He stayed, he was there at all seasons. And I don't believe that's just talking about the seasons of the year, when things were good, when things were bad, when they tried to kill me at Ephesus and when they didn't. You saw me, I live for God faithfully in the midst of that. He says, with all humility of mind, he was a humble Christian. He says in verse number, uh, verse number 19, do you see it there? With many, verse 19, the middle of it, church, with many what, church? Many tears. He said, with many tears, Paul was a committed Christian. He's going to say it later in this chapter in verse 24. Next time we preach through here, we'll see this verse. But none of these things move me, neither count on my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. What did he say? I'm committed to what God's called me to do, even when it brings tears, even when it brings heartache, even when it brings pain, even when it brings hurt, even when it brings uncertainty, even when people lie against me. He was a committed Christian. What does he say? With many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. He was a courageous Christian, stood strong in the face of battles. He said in verse 20, how I kept back nothing 
that was profitable unto you, a generous Christian, but have showed you an authentic Christian. He lived what he preached and have taught you publicly and from house to house a consistent Christian. Daily in big crowds and in private homes, Paul was who he was. See that list there? Just from those, and we could pull out a few other things, but from that, that list, at all seasons, Paul was faithful. He was humble. He was committed. In the face of trials and tears, he was courageous. When battles came, he didn't back down. He didn't run. He was generous. I didn't keep back anything. I gave my whole heart to you. Authentic. I showed you how to live, and then daily, I, I, I taught you how to live. What a pattern and an example for how we should strive to live our Christian lives. What great insight into why Paul was so mightily used. His manner of living matched his message. What if our churches were filled with Christians whose manner of living matched what we see in these verses here? How could we impact the world? Do those words right there, do they define and describe you to those who know you best? Why was Paul used so mightily? The heart of his Christianity, I believe his motive was right. His manner of living. And then lastly, you've listened well. I see the third reason God used him and what we need to boil it down and understand in our, the heart of Christianity is our message as Christians. Would you read verse 21 aloud with me? Verse 21 aloud with me. Ready? Begin. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Skip over to verse 24. Let's go to the, the second half. I just quoted the first half of it for you. And it says, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. What was Paul's ministry? What was his message? Here it is, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Skip down to verse 27, would you? Would you read that aloud with me? Verse 27, ready? Begin. For I have not shown to declare unto you all the counsel of God. You know what I see in Paul's life? And as a pastor, there are, there are pastor's seminars and, and conferences, and I go to some of them, and they're, they're helpful and get ideas. And there are books, and there are, you can sign up for coaching, and you can get consultants to come to your church, and here's what you need to do. And, and there's been books that have been written. You need to get your target audience. You, are you looking to reach the boomers? Are you looking to reach those in the middle age, the young couples? What are you trying to find your target audience and then adjust your church? You know what I see with Paul here? He had no target audience. You know what Paul's target audience was in verse number 21? He says here, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. You know who that covered? You say, Pastor, that's only two groups of people. That's the whole world. The Jews and the Greeks or the Gentiles, those that were not Jews. Paul said, my life, my message is to preach Jesus to everybody that I can. The first thing I see is Paul didn't have a target audience. His message was for everyone. And it's a good thing to remember God doesn't play favorites. He is no respecter of persons. The Bible says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For God, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever and by the way i'm thankful for our country i'm a patriotic american i'm glad that we can take a few minutes in our service today and thank god for the blessings and the bounty he's poured upon this nation but it's good for us as american christians who have lived under the blessing of almighty god for generations it's good for us to remember that god so loved the world he does not love one nation above another now he uses different nations at different times for his purposes and for his glory 
glory, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We need to remember this as it seems that some of the news media and in other groups have an agenda to seek to divide us from one another, pitting nationalities against each other and income classes against each other and countries against each other. And you know what I love about our church? Our church has people from the nursery, newborns, all the way up to people in their 80s and 90s every Sunday. And we've got people that have have been in America for generations and those that have been in America for months. And we have people that are college educated, have PhDs and people that are high school dropouts and everything in between. We have some folks that God has blessed materially that have some earthly wealth. And we have some others that are struggling just to get by, wondering where their food's gonna come from this week. And you know what the truth of the matter is? The gospel is for every one of those groups and the ones I didn't name. Our message, Paul's message, it was for everyone. I testify to the Jews and to the Greeks. There's only one race in God's eyes, the human race. The Bible says of one blood, God made all men. Racism is a human construct that Satan has used to pit God's children against one another. I'm not saying that racism hasn't existed and it doesn't exist. What I am saying is for the Christian, it ought not even be a part of our our mentality or our mind. In God's sight, there is one race, the human race. We've all been made of the same blood. We all have the same earthly father. We're all descendants of Adam. And we're, if, we're, if we're saved, we're all descendants of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Don't let, don't let the, 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 the society and culture and news media divide you as Christians. Our message is for everyone. I like that children's song. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black, brown, white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Is there any group of people that you would not gladly share the good news of Jesus with? Is there any group of people that you see bad things happen to them on the news and you rejoice in your heart? As Christians, we better check our hearts. The heart of Christianity is a passion and desire to do everything in our power to make sure that everyone in our sphere of influence has an opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ. That is the heart of Christianity. By the way, it's not only for everyone, and I'll finish with this, but I see in Paul the heart of Christianity. His message was for everyone, but it's about only one. It's about only one. Do you see it there in verse 21? What did he testify to the Jews and the Greeks? Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's preaching, you go through his his letters, it was all about Jesus. What did he say? For I, in Corinthians, I believe, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Our pulpits are filled, our lives, our social media accounts, our, 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 our mouths are filled with all kinds of nonsense today. In many corners, we'll, we hear much of politics from believers and religion and traditions and pastors preaching opinions and ideas and current events, but we hear so very little of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We hear arguments for and against social justice, but what we don't hear as much as we should is the one who is just, the faithful and righteous judge who will bring ultimate justice to this sin-cursed world. 
We hear religious platitudes and spiritual self-help speeches and encouraging devotionals with a little Bible verse thrown in. But are we truly preaching Jesus in our churches and in our lives? Are we preaching the whole counsel of God? He said in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Or are we preaching a watered-down, man-centered American version of Christianity? What did Paul tell the Colossian Christians? We preach Christ. We complicate so much, don't we? Christian, our message is Jesus. Are we sharing him? Are we telling others of him? Are our churches filled with him? When you strip everything down as to why we exist as a church, it's to preach Christ. So in a couple of verses here in Acts 20, Paul really gives a, a master's class on living the Christian life in the simplicity which God intended it. Our motive, serving the Lord. It's for him. Why I do what I do, I should as a pastor, if nobody shows up next week, if God's called me to preach from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church, I should stand up and preach, or if a half dozen show up, I should preach to six just as I would preach to 600. And if not one person says, Pastor, thank you for the message, if I'd gotten my study this week and I spent time in prayer and study and brought the message I believe God had for his people, and not one person says a word of encouragement, you know what, I should not go home discouraged. Now, I'm not saying I never do, but I shouldn't. Because my motive isn't supposed to be to impress or to please or to placate or, to, or to, to get you to approve what I do. My motive is supposed to be that he might have the preeminence, that he would be pleased, that I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Our motive is him. How's our manner of living? Christian, can you say like Paul, I've been with you for years and you know I served with humility of mind, with tears with temptations against opponents. I didn't keep back anything from you. I showed you how to live the Christian life when it was hard. Does our, does our manner of living match our message? And then our message, is it Jesus? Or have we gotten, I don't think any of us have a statue in our home worshiping some other false god made by hands, but have we allowed another message to consume our hearts? Another cause that's above, that, that we've placed above the cause of Christ in our lives. His message, what he said was, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. May I suggest this morning that any Christian or any church that becomes a casualty in the Christian life or a castaway, that ends up having some spiritual wipeout or maybe the church dies, may I suggest that probably every life or every church where that's the story, they got off track in one of these three areas. They started doing what they, they were doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. Their motive wasn't Jesus anymore, it was pleasing others. Or maybe their manner of living. They said one thing, the pastor preached some strong stuff from the pulpit, but his kids knew he lived a total double life at home. He, he didn't live what he told the people to live. And you know what'll happen there? you'll see lives get destroyed when our man manner of living doesn't match our message, when our motive isn't right. Or a church that at one time preached Jesus and they kind of lowered Jesus down and elevated themselves. And that can happen in our lives as well. Every Christian, every church that became a casualty or a castaway, I believe got off track in one of these three areas. How are you doing in your motive, in your manner of living, and in your message? Paul gave us 
a beautiful picture into why God used him so mightily in those four verses. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.